Once upon a time, I was in an airport and I was looking at the bookstore because I love to read. And when you're at the airport, man, you get the weirdest books. And I saw this one that was called The Third Jesus. And I thought, oh, I got to get this one. I didn't spend any money on it, but I took a look at it, and uh, it's by this New Age author. And uh, the th by the third Jesus, he was describing three different ways of thinking about Jesus. Number one, he said there was the historical Jesus, meaning the actual man that lived in Nazareth and did all of the miracles, etc. The second one was he called the theological Jesus, or the way that the church had talked about Jesus and theologized about Jesus throughout the centuries, the traditions surrounding Jesus. And he is saying, now it's time for the third Jesus, which I can only describe as a personalized, customized Jesus. That Jesus can be whatever you want. That it really doesn't matter who he was in history because that's lost to us. And we all know that the Christian church is dead and stupid anyway. So really, Jesus can be whoever you want him to be. And I laughed and put it back on the shelf. And you ever take another book and just stick it like in front of it? And, but uh, the author of the book of Revelation dealt with that kind of thing his whole life in ministry. And it drove him absolutely crazy. And you see this most clearly in the book of 1 John. And I want to start by reading these first three verses. And just listen to how John, writing this epistle, describes his testimony of Jesus. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And you can flip back over to Revelation now. We'll be there next. But notice there the experiential language that John uses. It says, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, I laughed with him, I camped with him, I leaned back against him at dinner and whispered in his ear and asked him questions. John knew Jesus, and John, of all the apostles in the New Testament, was the foremost in telling us exactly who Jesus was. Not that the others were in disagreement with him, but that was John's special emphasis. And people have been vacillating since the beginning of the gospel. In John's day, they were saying Jesus wasn't really a man. He was, he was a, an offshoot of the deity that had made its way among us. And there were these guys called docetists that believed that there was no body of Jesus. And that he didn't leave footprints in the sand. And so all of this was very early at this time. But John writes, I saw him. <laughs> I heard him. I touched him. Don't tell me about my friend. I was there, right? But then it vacillates back to, well, yes, he was a man, but he wasn't God. Well, John has something to say about that, too. He says, who was with God from the beginning and was made manifest to us. And then it will vacillate again to where most people are today, which is, does it really matter? Does it really, yeah, does it really matter who Jesus was? And John very much thought it did matter. He'll say, if you don't believe that Christ came in the flesh, you're an antichrist. Christianity is not like anything else. We're not like other religions. We're not like other philosophies. Because our entire faith is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. This isn't like Hinduism or Buddhism, which is really ultimately about you. And the person of Buddha is, for example, kind of immaterial to that philosophy. Uh, even something like, like Mormonism or Islam, where it's all about the singular prophet, Muhammad or, or Joseph Smith. What makes them special is what they said. It's not them particularly, as in God could have chosen anybody to deliver the same message and it wouldn't have made a difference. You look at the world's philosophies. If you're a Marxist, you're not a believer in him. You're a believer in what he said. If you're a Confucianist, you're not worshiping Confucius. You're respecting his ideas. Christianity is different. It's all about Jesus. It starts and ends with Jesus. And in this passage today, the beginning of our book about the end, 
We are given a spectacular revelation of Jesus in all his glory and all his power. And I know folks love to skip through the first couple chapters of Revelation to get to the good stuff. Nobody in here, I'm sure. <laughs> but you can't miss this because this book is ultimately all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. And when we see a vision like this, a heightened, exalted description of Jesus through the eyes of somebody who knew him and loved him and cared very much about his reputation, the veracity of these things is assured. It's not somebody who came later and made this up. This was a man that knew Jesus intimately. And this is what he had to say. Jesus is not up for debate. Weird books you find in the airport, notwithstanding. We know who he is. And before him, every man, woman, and child will stand or fall. So let us read this together. Revelation chapter 1. We'll finish the chapter today, starting at verse 9. And we'll begin going down to verse 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We've already identified the author of this book. We've seen his name already twice. He says, I, John, this is the apostle John. This is the evangelist John, the one who wrote down the gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the elder from the Johannine epistles. I'm not going to go into all the reasons for this again, but I'll just say at the very least, his language confirms it. The book of Revelation reads like the rest of John's writings read. But here he just calls himself the brother and the partner of the churches that he's writing to, and that would include you and me. He calls himself our brother and our partner. That word partner, I, I don't have time to do every word study today as much as I'd like to, but it actually takes the word koinonia, which means fellowship, and it attaches the word soon, which means with, and it kind of is like, I'm one of your with fellows. I'm, I'm extremely together in my partnership with you. He's not setting himself apart as some lofty apostle that you can't touch. But he tells us here three things in which he is our brother and our partner, especially that partner thing. And the first is tribulation. This is the word thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, thlipsis. I love that. Thlipsis, just fun to say. Not a fun word, though. It means suffering or affliction or tribulation, and especially suffering and tribulation for Jesus Christ. Number two, for the kingdom, the kingdom, the Basileia, that is the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ. And number three, he says, patient endurance. This is the word hupamane. It's in the Bible all over the place. Perseverance, patience, endurance, keep goingness. And you can see how these all tie together. It's not just endurance for its own sake. It's endurance to the end of life or to the end of the world, whichever comes first. And these three things are major themes of the book of Revelation. We're going to talk an awful lot about tribulation. In fact, Jesus called it the worst tribulation that had ever come upon the world. We're going to read about it in Revelation. We're going to read about the kingdom that is going to come. And in the chapter 20, Christ is going to establish a thousand-year kingdom on the earth. And perseverance is the major ethical thrust of the book of Revelation. You, as a Christian, need to keep going. Even if you are not living in this ultimate capital T tribulation, you've got to keep going through whatever you face. And so these major three themes, tribulations, the kingdom, and perseverance, are taken to the ultimate eschatological conclusion in this book, but they also apply to the individual Christian life. Every single one of us has tribulation. We suffer for Christ. Not only that, but the kingdom of Christ. While one day it will come in glory, anywhere Jesus is exalted as Lord and people bow the knee to him, Jesus Christ said the kingdom is among you. It's in your midst. And number three, perseverance. We've got to keep going until the end of life. You call yourself saved, good, I'm glad. But you need to finish. You have to persevere. 
And I wish I could talk more about those things, but we will as we go through it. But John sums up all of that as saying, in Jesus, in Jesus, the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Those three things are governed by a single article in Greek, which means they really all amount to one singular thing. John described his entire life as being in Jesus. And that really is a good description of his life up to this point. The first time we see John, the author of this book, is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, when it says, Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. It's the first time we see John is responding to the call of Jesus to be his disciple. John was a fisherman. His father, Zebedee, owned several boats, it talks about. Peter was one of his partners that they fished together, but John was of the family that actually owned this company. Mark 3.17 tells us that he and his brother James were called by Jesus the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. He's a fiery young man. And he is, according to tradition, I have no reason to doubt it, the youngest of the disciples. He was the only disciple who followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He didn't, now he still failed in that moment. He didn't stand up with Jesus, but at least he was there. And we know from that story as well that John took Jesus' mother into his own house and took care of her for the rest of her life. That's a pretty special relationship, isn't it? You say, I'm dying and I want you to take care of my mom. When Jesus entered John's life, everything changed. His whole trajectory was different. And it remained so throughout his life. It wasn't just, oh, I'm no longer a fisherman, but now I know this man Jesus. His whole life changed. Look at what he says. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's a rocky, volcanic place. People live there, but it's not particularly habitable. It's not necessarily like Hawaii, as far as islands go. And he says, I was there on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus. And tradition confirms for us that John was on the island of Patmos in exile for preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. There are some traditions that tell us he was working in the mines on Patmos, although some of these things are more difficult to confirm. And we know from church history that John would indeed be released in 96 AD after Domitian, the emperor, was, was, well, he died. I don't know if he was killed or not. But he was on this island in exile because, not just of the emperor's reasons, but there was work for him to do. He was there on this island. I mean, imagine, he's thinking, you know, a couple decades ago, I was sitting on a boat, mending my nets, and here came this man, Jesus, and then one thing led to another, and now I'm exiled on this island called Patmos. There was more for him to do, though, because he says, On the Lord's day, which is, this is Sunday, the Sabbath is always referred to as the Sabbath in the Bible. The Lord's day was what the early church referred to Sunday. They began worshiping very early for a number of reasons on Sunday. One of the reasons was because the Gentiles were, for, after not too long, not able to worship in the synagogues, as were many of the Jewish Christians. So Sabbath worship was not always available to them. Not only that, Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the Old Testament feast of first fruits. Leviticus 23 talks about that, that the first fruits was the Sunday that you celebrated. And so they worship Jesus on a Sunday. It's the Lord's day. He was in the spirit like Peter in Acts chapter 11 on top of the house. He was seeking God, waiting upon him. And he had what has been called by some an open vision, meaning he was still awake. He wasn't sleeping, but he was transported as in his vision was completely taken up by the things he was seeing in the spirit. Some of you, including myself, maybe have received visions from the Lord, but I've never had something where I was transported like this. The Bible talks about trances sometimes. I've had times where I've felt an impression from the Lord as if there was an image in my mind. This is something that goes beyond that. This is more like what Ezekiel experienced or Daniel or Peter in Acts chapter 11. And behind him, he hears this trumpeting voice, write a book to the seven churches in Asia. From the boat, mending his nets, to here on the island about to receive a heavenly vision of the end of the world, 
That's what Jesus did for John. He had lived a full life in Jesus, and that's what our lives are to be. Before anything else, you all, we are disciples of Christ. A Christian is many things, but the primary thing is that we are followers of Jesus. Many people want to talk, it seems today, about Christianity and the role that the church plays in society. But what seems to get lost in the midst of that is discussion of Jesus and his gospel. That's what defines the church. He has taken hold of our lives, too. You would not be here if Christ had not gotten a hold of you. And now we live in him. And so those things that he described, the tribulation and the kingdom, And the endurance, that's to characterize your life as well. Paul and Barnabas told the churches in Galatia in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What we're going to see prophetically laid out in Revelation, that there will be great tribulation leading to the coming of the kingdom, is lived out in miniature in every Christian life. Romans 8.17 says that if we do not suffer with him, we will not be glorified with him. Meaning if you are not able to endure for the sake of Christ all that he's called you to do, you have no business claiming the name of Christ. If you want to claim that name, oh, I believe in Jesus. If you want to encounter the living God the way John is here. If you want to enter the kingdom, you want to go to heaven, you've got to persevere through your own tribulation for the sake of Christ. Now that doesn't really sound like a book you'd read in the airport. You might wonder, why would anybody suffer for a dead man this way? It's one thing to honor someone's memory. It's another thing to commit yourself and insist upon enduring suffering for his sake. Why would we do that? Well, John is about to turn around and find out. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's Jesus. John the disciple was in Jesus' inner circle of three. Jesus had the multitudes that followed him. He had the 70 disciples that he sent out two by two. He had his 12 that he later named apostles. And even within the 12, he had Peter, James, and John that he gave extra lessons to. They saw more than the rest. And if you want to turn to Matthew 17, I'm going to read a story that John, his brother, and Peter got to experience that the rest of the disciples didn't that is relevant to what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 1. You know the story, Revelation, or sorry, Matthew 17. It says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. Don't just think tents. These are tabernacles, Old Testament tabernacles. Here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Think of the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As in, over and above Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The transfiguration. And they was told not to tell anybody about that until after Christ had risen. Why is that? He says, I'm going to rise from the dead. They're going to debate what it means. I'm showing you ahead of time what it means. This is who I really am. I am the fulfillment of everything Moses and Elijah, representing the Old Testament, talked about. 
It all builds to me. I am the Son of God. So John knew who Jesus really was. John, who called us to share in tribulation and the kingdom and suffering, right? Endurance. He didn't just do that because, well, my old rabbi was a real good friend of mine. I liked him and I'm really loyal to him. So I want you all to die for him, please. That's not a nice thing to ask people to do. But John called us to do those things because he knew who Jesus was. John the Apostle maintained an exalted high Christology until the day he died. As I said, John, over and above the other New Testament writers, focused on the exaltation of the person of Christ. John 1 verse 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John makes no bones about who Jesus was. And he had that transfiguration. And now here on Patmos, he has another vision of the glorified Christ. Not long ago, we were in Daniel chapter 10. And verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, Daniel has a very similar experience. Where one who seems to be an angel in the passage, until you read verses like this and you go, they're described almost exactly the same way. So perhaps this was the capital A, angel of the Lord Christ himself, prior to his incarnation. And I think that these two visions are intended to speak to one another, to remind you this is the same Lord speaking about the same kinds of things. He sees the lampstands, seven lampstands. Think of these probably like the, the menorah that you would have seen in the tabernacle and the temple, that seven-branched lampstand. We'll come back to those in a little bit, but in the midst of those lampstands, we have an overwhelming representation of who Jesus really is. Now, some people would probably rightly caution us against pressing any one of these details too closely. But I'm going to do some of that today. Because I think each one of these things that John saw reveals something that we know and believe about Christ Jesus. That is confirmed in other passages of Scripture, so we're not just pulling it from here. But when people talk about, well, who was Jesus really? We know who Jesus is. And this reminds us. So let's look at this. Let's break down each one of these pieces. First, it says he was like a son of man. This begins by speaking to his humanity. Jesus was made flesh in actuality. John 1.14, right? The word of God was with God and was God. But in verse 14, he was made flesh and dwelt among us. The son of man, he was a man. He did not just look like a man. He does not just act like a man. He became 100% man. And this connects us back to Daniel again, Daniel chapter 7 this time, where John said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, meaning the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man speaks to his humanity, but also as the Lord of all humanity, the one whose kingdom will endure forever. What did Jesus always call himself when he was speaking in the first person or the third person? The son of man. And when he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, in Mark 14, 62, and he said, one day you're going to see the Son of Man, me, come riding on the clouds, Caiaphas was a little triggered. He tore his clothes. How dare you say that? He knew what was up. And John sees the same thing, that he is man, but he's not just man. He is man above all other men. Then we see a long robe with a golden sash about his chest. The sash was typically worn about the waist, so why is it up on the chest? Because this speaks of Christ's priesthood. The high priest wore an ephod, which was like a, an, an extra garment that contained 12 gems that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Exodus 29, or 28 tells us this, so that the priest, when he goes into the holy place, is bearing the children of Israel on his heart. And that's who Christ is for us. Also, by the way, the fact that he is barefoot, the high priest never wore shoes when he was ministering in the holy place. 
So again, that also speaks to his priesthood. Jesus Christ is our high priest before the Father. He represents us to God and he represents God to us. Hebrews 4.14 says we have a great high priest who offered his own blood as a sacrifice. Not with rams and bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood. He's our high priest. Third, that his hair was white, like white wool, like snow. This speaks of his divinity, his eternity. Why can I say that? Well, because John did this very frequently. It's one of the reasons we know John wrote this, John the Apostle. John loves to take a description or an attribute of God the Father from the Old Testament and apply it to Jesus. Remember that passage in Daniel 7 I just mentioned, where one like a son of man appeared before the Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days, which is a representative of God, right? That's who God is, is pictured as having hair like wool, like the driven snow. It, it speaks of age and eternity that God has always been there. That God is self-existent. And by describing Christ in the same way, really by seeing Christ in the same way, we are reminded that Jesus is not just man. He is God, very God. He is one with the Father in that triune union. Self-existent from eternity past. Nobody made Jesus. He made everything else. Colossians 1, another apostle, Paul, wrote this, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The New Testament writers believed in the deity of Christ. They believed in the eternity of Christ. So this is not a doctrine that was added later. It's non-negotiable to be a Christian. If you don't believe that Jesus was God, I'm sorry, I don't know what you are, but you're not a Christian. You're not a New Testament Christian in any way. People say, weren't those things added later? No. People assume they were added later. Then they come to the Bible and find all those places that say that and say, this must have come later. Even though every archaeological discovery pushes them back closer and closer to the traditional dates. He's not just man. He's God, which is why he can be our high priest, because he is both man and God in that wonderful hypostatic union. Fourth, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of his wisdom, his penetrating insight. You ever known somebody that you don't like them looking at you too long? Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, perhaps this is that they were actually burning like flames, or maybe John is just like when I, I looked at him and it was like I was getting burned up looking in his eyes. Either way, it's the same thing. Nothing escapes the sight of Christ. John 2 tells us nobody had to tell Jesus about man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. Like nobody had to come to Jesus and say, watch out for this guy. He's kind of a scoundrel. He'll, he'll trick you. Jesus goes, I know, man. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He has penetrating insight. And someday, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that every work you have done will be tested in the fire of Christ's gaze. He's going to look upon what you've done, evaluate it, and judge it. And only that which is done for him and to his glory will last forever. C.T. Studd, famous missionary to China and Africa, said, Just one life, twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And the one who's going to sort that out is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire himself. Number five, his feet were like burnished bronze. This is one of the only instances we get of the skin tone of Christ, by the way. That when he was in his glorified shining state, like burnished bronze, which makes total sense because that's the part of the world he was from. But this isn't just revealing that. It's speaking of his authority. That he's able to crush under those feet of bronze anybody that stands against him. Psalm 8, verse 6, prophesying about the coming Messiah, the King of Israel said, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We all love the picture of gentle Jesus. And was Jesus gentle and meek? Oh, yes, he was. Let the children come to me, right? He's called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was approachable. People loved him. But 
That meekness, the very definition of meekness, means that there is great power and authority available, but it is not used. It's kept under control. And that meekness will give way to authority when our king returns. Jesus Christ is coming back. He came the first time as a lamb. He's coming again as a lion. The king. And I love it. Because it says because it's burnished bronze that when you heat up bronze, it, it shines like that. So it could just be you know, describing how it looked. But I think there might be an added sense there that when bronze has been burnished, when it's been refined in the fire, in the same way, Jesus Christ himself had been refined. He had passed through life and death and passed every test and came out on the other side and is now qualified to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Number six, his voice was like the roar of many waters. That just speaks of the power of his word, his voice. In fact, Jesus Christ is called the word of God. John 1 verse 1, that word is logos. And that, that word is picking up traction again in the political sphere. The Christians worship the word. We don't worship words. We worship Jesus, who is called the word. So when people want to take that concept and apply it anywhere other than to Jesus Christ, they're mistaken. For the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If you miss that, you're missing the whole thing. He was the one who spoke creation into existence. When God created the world, did he spin it around and do all kinds of magical stuff? No, he said, let there be light. It was his word that created the world. And then in John, we read that the word of God is Christ himself. We believe that the words of Jesus, along with Peter, who said this first, are the only words that can give life. You won't find these words anywhere else. His commandments are binding. You don't get to mess around. Well, Jesus said it, but I disagree. You don't get to disagree. His voice is like the roar of many waters. And his promises will never fail. And today, Christ is still speaking through his written word, through that Bible sitting in your lap. That, although it's written there, it was spoken with a voice of many waters. And also through his Holy Spirit, who testifies of these things to our heart. And you ignore the words of Christ at your own peril. If you say, I know, but, you better watch out. Number seven, he holds seven stars in his right hand. This is speaking of his love, but we're going to get back to those stars in a second. Let's move on to the next one. Number eight, a sharp, two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Again, is John seeing a vision of a sword coming out of his mouth? Or is he hearing Jesus speak and it's like every word just cut me open, man. I think at least the second one is true and maybe the first one is true as well. If I can borrow from C.S. Lewis here, Jesus is not a tame lion. He's not a safe man in that sense. If by that you mean harmless and People can kind of get whatever they want out of him, sort of like a nice little Santa Claus. With a word, Christ made the world, and with a word, he will unmake the world. Revelation 19.15 says that the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth will be used to strike down the nations. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says he will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. Isaiah 11 verse 4 says, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with full equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Justice is a fierce thing when there is zero compromise. Jesus is no one to trifle with. Nothing is beyond his capability. The sword is sharp. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And if the written word has that kind of effect, what do you think will happen when the living word of God speaks? All creation will fall before him. And ninth, his face is shining like the sun. I wish I could take another hour and just talk about this. Because what does this remind us of? Reminds us of Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down the mountain and his face was shining. This is the part you need to remember. After the episodes at Mount Sinai, Moses always wore a veil because his face was shining. And it freaked everybody out. 
So he put a veil over it. And we talked about that back in Exodus, how that would have affected his relationships. It would have affected negotiations with other nations, all, all kinds of things. And here's Jesus' face shining like the sun. Have you ever looked at the sun? Not for very long you didn't. What does this speak of? The blessing that Christ brings us in the new covenant. Why do I say blessing? Because the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6, 25 was, May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. That's new covenant blessing. And you know, the old covenant was glorious. We're in the book of Deuteronomy on Wednesdays. We don't want to minimize the old covenant. It was glorious. But as Paul tells us, when you compare the glory of the old covenant to the new covenant, it's as if it doesn't have any glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 10, verse 11 says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the law of Moses, has come to have no glory at all. Why? How can you say that, Paul? You are a Pharisee and a rabbi. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That permanent, everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. If Moses, bringing down the law, which was to reveal God's righteousness, but also our own righteousness, was so glorious that its messenger's face shone like the sun, how much more will this everlasting gospel that writes the law on your heart and offers true forgiveness and liberation from sin and eternity in heaven apart from works, but through grace and faith alone, how much more glorious is that? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, man. Praise God. There is so much blessing in this new covenant. And we're going to discuss exactly what that means in a minute and commemorate it with communion after that. But you see this picture of Jesus. And when John saw Jesus transfigured the first time, God the Father told them, this is my son, listen to him. And I think the same lesson applies to you and me, does it not? If that's Jesus, you best listen up. You must bow before him. This is what John had been trying to communicate his whole ministry. That Jesus was more than just a guy who had a lot of nice things to say. In fact, if you look at the things he said, if he was just a man, they weren't very nice things that he said. He's not just an idea. Oh, don't you think that drove John crazy? When he was in, visited some church and some smart guy gets up and says, I mean, really, it doesn't matter if Jesus was real or not. And he goes, I beg your pardon? Well, I mean, it might be, but who knows? He goes, I know, I was there. Well, but I mean, who's to say? I mean, he might not have been physical and corporal after all. He goes, I, I'm going to include this story in my gospel. I leaned against him and whispered in his ear at dinner time. We were eating together. He rose from the dead and he made fish and we all ate together. Don't tell me he wasn't a real person. Not just an abstraction, but the son of God in truth. So if what we just saw might be described by a book in the airport as the theological Jesus. Can you not see that this is inextricably tied to the historical Jesus? His best friend wrote these things about him. There's no room for customization with Christ. I like the love stuff, don't like the hell stuff so much. Sorry, you don't get to pick. Because his eyes are like a flame of fire. And you don't customize a man like that. In fact, even John reacted in a way that you might not react to many of your friends. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John fell down at his feet like he was dead. He fainted, to put it in a single word. Just like Daniel did in Daniel 10.9 when he saw one like a son of man clothed in such a way. And just like John and James and Peter had fallen at, the, at his feet when they saw him transfigured on the mount. 
even though John knew him intimately. John knew him better than any person who was alive at this time. And he saw the risen Jesus and collapsed. But just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, and just like when Daniel saw him, the hand of Christ came upon his shoulder and said, fear not. You could literally translate that, stop fearing. Stop being afraid. That's always what God does when we encounter him, isn't it? Your first thought is of how great and glorious and fearsome he is, but the very next thing he tells you is, do not be afraid. He describes himself as the beginning and the end. Again, taking something he just used to describe God the Father, the Alpha and the Omega, and applying it to himself. That's how John does it. And the living one, speaking of the gospel here, the gospel, the news of Jesus, the story of Jesus. The last time we saw John directly interacting with Jesus is actually kind of oblique. It's in John 21 when Peter is restored to the ministry and he says, uh, Peter, you're going to die for me one day. And Peter, kind of, you know what he was like a little bit, said, Jesus, what about, what about John? <laughs> what about this guy? And Jesus told him, Peter, mind your own business. <laughs> he said, Peter, maybe I want him to stay alive until I come. How about that? And John 21, verses 23 tells us, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus did not say that he was not to die. But he said, if it, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? John's clearing it up. Like, I'm going to die eventually if Jesus doesn't come back, guys. And he says, this is the disciple bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Although John did, in fact, die and go back home to his reward, John was the longest living apostle. He was the only apostle who was not martyred, who was not killed for his faith. And he lived much longer than the rest of them did, decades longer and he spent all those years doing what is just said there, bearing witness about these things, writing them down, testifying to Jesus, correcting churches about the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? That Jesus Christ, that word made flesh, was crucified. He was crucified on a cross. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. As a sacrifice in your place, because that's what you deserved. But he said, I'll take that penalty for you. I'll propitiate the wrath of God, which means I will take the wrath of God upon myself so that there is none remaining for you. He was buried. And it says he went down into death and Hades. If you know your Greek mythology, you know Hades was the god of the underworld. Romans called him Pluto. But more than that, Hades was the domain, the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament, they used that word Sheol, the place where dead people go. And he went down into it. But what happened on the third day? Not a trick question, church. What happened on the third day? He rose from the dead. He came back to life. It wasn't just a vision. It wasn't just a ghost. It was a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then he went on top of the Mount of Olives with his disciples and ascended to heaven, caught up in a cloud. And he says, now I hold the keys of death and Hades. I have the ability to unlock the grave and let people out because he's already been there, harrowed hell and defeated death. All authority belongs to Christ. That's the picture of keys, isn't it? The one who holds the key to death is not the devil. The devil doesn't hold the keys to hell. Jesus does. He is the one that has the authority to either send you there or liberate you from there. He alone has the power to save you. Acts 17.31, Paul said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, meaning fairly. You're going to get exactly what you deserve. And you might say, oh, good. I don't know if that's a good thing for you, friend. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And every other cult wants to throw their guy in there. He's the man. Muhammad's the man. Joseph Smith is the man. Brigham Young's the man. No. Because of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. They didn't rise from the dead. My living Jesus rose from the dead. 
He holds the keys of death and hell. Now you hear that and you just heard this description of who Christ is with feet like burnished bronze and eyes like a flame of fire and that might cause you to tremble a little bit. You mean I've got to stand before that guy? People say ignorant, foolish things like, well, when I die, I'll sort it out with God. Really? You're going to look this man in the face whose face is shining like the sun and his voice is like the roar of many waters and explain yourself? It won't happen. He holds the keys over you, sinner. And I know we don't like talking about sin anymore, but we're gonna. If you have ever done anything wrong, you are guilty. That seems extreme. No, it's not extreme. Because that means that that virus called sin lives inside of you. And it comes out of you. And it corrupts the world. Well, that's not fair. People did things to me. Nobody suffered more than our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he did not revile in turn. He's the standard. It's not graded on a curve. You wouldn't even survive graded on a curve against a good man. Pick your favorite guy and say, oh, maybe I'm as good as him. Nope. The standard is perfection. You've been messing around in church your whole life thinking, well, I go to church, that's good enough. No, it's not. No, it's not. Many will stand before this risen Lord and say, hey, it's me. Remember me? And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. So what are you working? Are you working righteousness or are you working iniquity? Well, I try my best. Not good enough. Not good enough. You'll fall at his feet and call him Lord, regardless of your eternal destination. But I'm not here to bum you out. <laughs> Although, if you need to be, then God be with you. There's another symbol in this passage we haven't decoded yet, and that's the one that makes all the difference. He explains that the stars you saw in my right hand represent the angels of the churches. Now, we might hit this more next time, but... There's a couple different ways to understand this, and I'll let you think about it on your own. Number one is that these are the guardian angels of the individual churches. You can make a pretty good case that the Lord sends certain angels to oversee various churches in the New Testament, which would be pretty exciting to think about for our own church. Although you might say, why is he writing letters to them? Maybe it's symbolic, I don't know. Number two, that this represents the pastors of the churches. The word angel just means messenger. So the messengers of the churches, maybe he's writing to the pastors as representatives of the churches. There are others who have said perhaps John had received emissaries from these other churches. They were asking him questions, letting him know how things were going. And John was in prayer and said, Jesus, what do I say to these guys? And then Jesus responded with what we have as the book of Revelation. In any case, I think you can see it refers to the churches in some way. And maybe we'll hit this more next time. Because we know these lampstands represent the churches. Matthew 5, right? You don't, you don't put the light under a bushel. You put it on a lampstand. And that's what the churches are. In his right hand, this risen, terrifying Jesus, in his right hand, he holds the churches. And he walks in the midst of them. And he laid that hand, that right hand, he laid upon John. And said, do not be afraid. Those who live their lives in Jesus are in his right hand. He's holding on to you. It's his love. That's what makes the difference. People will say this. Well, even if God is real, why should he care about you? Why would he die for me? Because he loves you. The love of God. God is love. God has ever existed in triune relationship of love within himself. The Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father, who loves the Spirit. That's why we can say God is love. It's not something that was added later. He has ever existed that way. God is love. And for you who are in Christ, the only thing left for you is not wrath, but love. The love of Jesus. John referred to himself in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The thing that impressed John more than anything else about his relationship with Jesus was that he loves me. Can you believe that? Although Christ has all power and all authority and will come in vengeance to judge the world, he's holding the keys of death and hell, but in his other hand, he's holding you and me, friend. He's holding those churches, his people.
his beloved ones, so that I might offer you forgiveness today. And some of y'all might be here like, okay, I got to do something about this. How do I get in on this? I'm glad you asked. Romans 10, 9. I think this verse makes so much more sense in the light of what we just discussed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord means king, master, ruler, authority, God, in fact. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must agree with the testimony of John about who Jesus is. That's how salvation comes. And are there implications that come after that? You bet. You better start obeying the commandments that came from the mouth of the one whose word is like a sharp sword. Bowing the knee, living your life after him, but it begins by calling him Lord and submitting your life to him. Repenting from your sins, walking away from the things that have put you in opposition to him and trusting that his grace is enough to save you. That the love of Jesus will be enough. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you and sent me here to talk to you and offer you forgiveness freely. No longer can you say, well, I didn't know. Sorry, you know now. You know, verse 19, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That's a great functional outline for the book of Revelation. Write what you've seen, write this vision of me you just had. Write about the things that are, the churches in chapter 2 and 3. And write about the things that will be, which is the rest of the book. It's about the future, the end times. But I think it also serves as a great description of the corpus of John's writings. In his gospel, he wrote about what he had seen. He told the story of Jesus Christ. In his epistles, he was writing about the things that were to him then. He was addressing the churches in their situations. And then in his revelation, he wrote about the things that are to come. His whole life, John was writing and testifying of who Jesus was. And he had to battle with strange ideas about his friend and his Lord. And so do we. Whether you find a weird book in the airport, or you find something that someone posted on Facebook or some strange YouTube video, or you come across somebody in, in the wild and they have strange ideas about Jesus, there are always people who want to take Jesus and make him into something they want him to be. There are people that think that you have to do that because you can't know anything about him. But such people have not read the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is a revelation of the end, but ultimately it is a revelation of Jesus. You cannot separate the historical Jesus from the theological Jesus because that is the self-revelation of him. In history, I revealed who I was in eternity. And you don't get to have your own personal Jesus. The only ones that have a personal Jesus are those who are within his church that are dwelling within his right hand. The lampstands in which he walks in the midst. They're the ones that get to know him personally. The church who know him. And we dare not make up our own ideas about him. We just fall at his feet and call him Lord Jesus and receive him when he says in his love, do not be afraid. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible because the return of Christ is a fearful thing. But he's holding out his right hand to you and me today saying, do not be afraid, just believe.